Okay. So it, yeah. we're, we're just as dumb as the first people who did it. We're just trying we to match are. Larry in the cave. Yeah, and the first there. people, yeah. I, well, we're a lot dumber than the first people who did it. The first people who did it didn't know. <laughs> they didn't know. The yeah. Science. Good they point. We're know. dumber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That, that's actually a bummer. More Wiser Podcast. Tamu Green, developmental psychologist. So I'd like you to picture for a moment an alternate reality, one where we wake up tomorrow and cigarettes have been outlawed. Now, clearly this causes a stir. It's headline news, but the sun goes down tomorrow. Do you realistically think we would see riots in the street if we banned cigarettes in the United States? Well, it's an interesting question. When you say if we banned them, does that mean that people could still get their hands on them illegally? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question. I think we would have to assume illegal activity could still happen. Right. So I think that if people could still get their hands on them illegally, then that's what would happen. And that actually is the argument that a lot of pro-tobacco folks make is that if we do ban cigarettes, then um, people will just turn more and more to the black market, which is why the proposal that I have is to allow people who are currently addicted to continue to have access to the product that they're addicted to. Right. Your grandfather clause, which we'll get to, and I want to pick your brain on how we would implement that. But so when I watch your talk and then I watch a, a bunch of other videos on cigarettes, is this a naive question? Has nicotine always been in cigarettes or was this added to make them super highly addictive substances? No, nicotine is naturally occurring in tobacco. Oh, pff, there you go. That's how little I know about cigarettes. Oh, no, it's perfectly fine. In fact, I was reading a book recently and although it was a fictional book, um, this part in it was accurate, which was that kids were picking tobacco and that they were told to use gloves, but this kid did not use gloves at one point, pulled the gloves off and didn't use them and actually became very sick because the nicotine and the tobacco, uh, you know, came through his skin, through the skin in his hands and made him really sick. So, um, yeah, you don't have to add extra nicotine into tobacco to make it addictive. Although my understanding is that tobacco companies, cigarette companies do in fact do that. Oh, they do. They add. That's my understanding. So um, I don't know 100% if that's accurate, but that that is one of the things. So that's one of the proposals that um, have been floated out there. And in fact, there's a really compelling TED talk that's out there about um, essentially pulling back the amount of nicotine in cigarettes, which could be done to um, gradually reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes so that essentially it becomes less and less rewarding and addictive for people over time to the point where they it's not going to be worth it to them to smoke the cigarettes because they're not getting um, as much of that nicotine as they are craving. Yeah, because, you know, I think about the nicotine patches and the gum and I'm sitting here thinking, why don't we add it to like floss and pizza? And why, why aren't we just adding nicotine to everything to, to make people addicted and, and buy your product? Is nicotine the problem or is it cigarettes that's really the problem? 
Well, it's the nicotine that addicts you. Right. But it's the cigarettes that will kill you because it's the smoke inhalation um, that is so dangerous to you. But it's also the tobacco itself, which is essentially toxic to us. So that's why if you chew tobacco, that you are more likely to get cancerous lesions in your mouth and in your throat. Because it's a really, it's a toxic substance. It's a really toxic plant. Oh yeah, it's horrible for you. But but I guess maybe what I was asking was, it's the addictive nature of a cigarette that's so terrifying. Because, you know, cheeseburgers don't have it in it. And I mean, if you eat five a day, that's not great for you. But it's not that same addictive nature. I mean, I know people who smoke and it's like, it's like something ticks on in their brain where they're like, I need to escape this building to go do it. It's kind of frightening. Right. Yeah, no, it's essentially the nicotine receptors. And I don't know that I'm great at explaining this, but essentially we have nicotine receptors in our brain. And so the way that it was described to me once years ago, because I'm working in in this field of uh, substance abuse prevention for many years, is that it's akin to if you walked by um, a bulldog who had never had red meat before, (laughs) and you threw that bulldog some red meat, they would love it. And every time you walk by, they would expect you to throw them some more red meat, and they would act in such a way until you did, because they had essentially developed a taste for it. And so fortunately, the people who don't smoke don't experience the craving that people who do smoke do experience because we have not essentially um, uh, lit up our nicotine receptors in our brains to say that's the substance that we need. That's the substance that's going to help to quell our anxiety, to calm us down, um, to make all the stimulation that's in our environment come down a little bit more. Um, And so that's what we're really trying to do is to prevent people in the first place from waking up those receptors so that they don't feel that crushing need as you're talking about having to leave the party or whatever it is um, to have to go and get that fix. Now, is that the same part of the brain then for people who are, say, addicted to pills? Or is the nicotine receptor kind of a separate thing that's even more heightened? Yeah, it's a unique receptor. So yeah, if you're addicted to pills, then that's going to be different receptors. Okay. Interesting. Or addicted to alcohol or other things. And and here's... (laughs) Let me ask you another really dumb question. You look at what's inside of a cigarette and it's terrifying, right? Like if you, if you said, I'm going to ingest that just on your own, I mean, that would be absurd, but in a cigarette, it's not. Now, is that just inherent in tobacco or are these things that are also being added or is it just a native to the tobacco plant that has all these toxins and, and chemicals in it? Oh, they add all kinds of things to cigarettes. That's what I, don't I know thought. What the, okay. Yeah. I don't know what the list is now. I haven't looked it up in a long time. Um, but yeah, there was like formaldehyde and like all yeah. of these really insane substances that they would add. And I don't know if it was to increase the addiction or to help with like burning down the cigarette, you know, faster or, you know, what all these various substances did. I remember reading that there was rat poison in cigarettes, like, you know, so 
again, I haven't looked it up in a while, so I'm not sure what's in modern day cigarettes. But um, yeah, from a survival standpoint, you would normally not say that's something that I want to put in my mouth and inhale. Yeah. And it's a really interesting business model to actively kill your consumers with, (laughs) I mean, is this naive? Wouldn't it be smarter if it wasn't so dangerous so then people could smoke for longer? So it's interesting that you should say that. Um, I mean, so I guess there are two ways to approach answering that question. Um, one of the ways is just to talk about the sheer profit. So because there is so much profit in, uh, the, in the cigarette industry that it kind of doesn't matter if you kill off your consumers because you're also putting, um, you're also creating new consumers every day. And so because there is just so much profit, in fact, I was just looking at a statistic for it. So when cigarettes came onto the market in 1903, because they had this cigarette rolling machine called the Bonsack cigarette rolling machine was created in 1881. And so that allowed there to be mass production of cigarettes. So when the American Tobacco Company um, utilized this machine, by 1903, they had increased their sales to $316 million. Now, what that is in today's dollar, yeah. So the (laughs) equivalent in purchasing power today is $10.7 billion. Right. So when you think about the money that is in the industry in 2018, which is the most recent year um, for which we have figures that are reported, the world's six largest cigarette manufacturers made profits of more than $55 billion. So that's more than the combined profits of, for example, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Nestle, Wow. Uh, Mondelez, FedEx, General Mills, Starbucks, Heineken, Carlsberg. So you put take all those companies together, and they're still not making as much as the cigarette companies. So they can afford to kill off their <laughs> their consumers. That's crazy! It's wow, really crazy. But the the other way, I guess, of answering your question is that some of these companies now actually are pivoting. I just saw just like an hour ago, Philip Morris coming out and saying, "You know what?" Mm, maybe we're not going to do cigarettes anymore because they've already started to really employ um, like electronic cigarettes, you know, to do vaping, to put their, they're kind of seeing the writing on the wall. And so to be making that pivot. Now they're not saying that we're getting out of the business of killing people. And in fact, in their statements, they're saying we have this responsibility to our sustainability and our shareholders and whatnot. (laughs) So, So they're saying, no, we're still going to stay in the business, um, but we're going to see if we can make a product that is maybe a little bit less dangerous. Now these, and I mean, you just highlighted how just large these companies are and powerful, I think is something people don't really realize. So I want to throw another hypothetical at you. Say you're the politician that finally decrees there's going to be no more cigarettes. They're, they're, they're going to be banned. Would you honestly be fearful for your life as that politician that something could happen to you from big tobacco? Well, I will say that I was very careful for, for a number of years. 
oh, really? um, about speaking out because I had young children and um, I just knew how much money was at stake, you know, in terms of profits for the tobacco industry. Um, so I think it's, it's the profits that could really drive um, unsavory behavior. In terms of people's addiction, I don't, I don't know if people would turn to violence if they did not have access to the product that they were addicted to. Um, I just don't know. What types of things, well, I guess here, let me, let's work backwards. When did you start feeling comfortable to, to come out and have these conversations? Cause clearly you gave a Ted talk. So at yeah. what point did it switch a little bit for you? Um, I think as my kids got older and I just started feeling like there were, there were conversations like the idea had gotten out into the world. So, you know, there were more and more people that were talking about it um, at the international level, that it wasn't just something that could be pointed towards me, you know, or my family, um, but that it was an idea that had gotten itself out there. And so when that happened, then it felt like, okay, well, I'm just can be one of many people who are saying that this is something that needs to happen. Did you ever turn down interviews or, or going on, you know, shows or the news to talk because of that fear? Um, no, it wasn't like that. It was more about kind of the secrecy around working with the small think tank of other people that were helping us really iron out this idea um, and making sure that like the documents that we were creating and, and using and whatnot together um, were really um, were kind of held in privacy with us until we were ready to come out like more as a coalition where we had a number of organizations that were signed on and to be able to put that out um, to the press. So I know in 1964, there was a pretty major breakthrough or discovery in the research that, hey, these are undeniably bad. You mentioned it in, in your talk, I believe. Mm-hmm. So between 64 and when you started feeling comfortable, what changes in the research occurred that made it more ironclad and, and for internationally people to be able to come out and say, this is just too much. We can't ignore this. Was there another milestone piece of research that happened? No, I don't think so. Um, I think it's more that people started to just become more emboldened around fighting the tobacco industry and saying, somehow we have all been brainwashed to believe that um, it is a right, a fundamental right for us to smoke cigarettes. And that if you try to counter that, that that is some kind of slippery slope where the government is going to take away the rest of your rights or something like that. Um, But so for folks to be able to turn that corner and say, wait a second, this is not some kind of fundamental right that the industry has to kill us and our children. This is something that if we have policy interventions that we can utilize to phase out this deadly product, then we need to be doing that. 
And back in the day, the, the advertising was, I mean, objectively phenomenal for cigarettes. I mean, oh, yeah. the, the Marlboro Absolutely. Man and, and whatnot. Now, in today's age, though, do you think it's obviously banned in print and, and there's other ways it's banned in, in advertising, but if we removed it from film and TV alone, would that even make a dent in your mind? Would it even, I mean, it, would it still just be societally seen as something you just do? Or do you think removing it from the pop culture would have any impact at all? I think that removing it from pop culture would have some impact um, because we're all um, influenced by pop culture, whether we think that we are or not. Um, but there's also um, norms you know, that have been established in families and communities. And those are pretty strong to counter. Uh, and so I don't know that cigarette smoking would go away on its own just because we removed um, advertising for it. But with that said, there's a lot of money <laughs> that oh, sure. is spent on advertising. Um, um, but yeah, the amount of of money that the tobacco industry spends to make sure that people, you know, feel good about smoking, um, uh, using their products, again, equating their products with freedom, um, with independence, um, with choice and adulthood, uh, that that can't be underestimated. Now, what kind of safeguards are there in place to ensure that they're not directly or indirectly marketing to children with these ads. Does anybody have to review these ads? Is there any sort of committee that looks at this and says, this one's too close to trying to speak to children or does that not exist? Um, well, so there was a big tobacco settlement agreement um, that happened. I want to get my years right. I feel like it happened 25 or 30 years ago. And this tobacco settlement agreement, um, essentially in it was this acknowledgement that um, tobacco companies were um, directing their ads towards children. So, you know, if you look back and you think about Joe Camel and the cartoons and all of that, the Marlboro Man, you know, kids and cowboys. And so as part of that settlement agreement, that's where we got rid of um, um, cigarette advertising on TV, where we got rid of, you know, billboards and um, some of the outright advertising that was seen to be directed at children. Um, and so I have to imagine now that any kind of advertising that is done um, is screened at the government level so that um, it does not seem to be directed at children. Now, you can't sue them for dying, right? Like, it's not like asbestos where you where you can have like a class action lawsuit. This is very different, even though it's equally as deadly, right? Or can you sue someone? People have tried. And so I'm actually not sure what the outcome of some of these pursuits have been, some of these legal pursuits have been. Um, but my guess is that if anyone were actually successful in winning a suit, that it would be like a, a domino effect, right? When you think about how many other people could jump onto that and also claim injury. Does it help them at all now to admit that they're bad so that 
people can't claim that they didn't know anymore? Is it like a catch 22? Right. Yeah, I think that that's the thing, even with like this notice from Philip Morris, you know, that I saw today where they're saying, yes, this is harmful. And so we're trying to create something for you that's less harmful. So the I feel like the tobacco industry has changed its tune so that they're basically saying, oh, sure, we all know that there are harms that we accept as adults. Right. And do any of right. <laughs> do, <laughs> yes. Do any of those companies still deny the dangers of smoking or do they all have they all somewhat changed their tune a bit? I think they've all changed their tune because, you know, it's common knowledge now. And so now again, the whole um approach is to associate it with your freedom and independence and choice. Right. Which appears to be still working because a lot of people still smoke. Right. But I have to say, and I'm 32 years old and I'm, I am, it's probably good. I'm shocked when I see people smoking, especially right. who are my age. And it's, right. it's almost like for me, I'm a millennial. I go, why, why are you smoking? We all know what's going on. Uh-huh. Are there certain and and I notice when I go to different areas of the U.S., it's very prevalent in some states and um, like uh, areas versus others. Where would you say the biggest hotspots are today in the U.S. for people who still like to smoke? Oh, I guess I would have to look that up, but I think it's still in the South. Okay, which would make the most sense because it's a tobacco growing region, and there's like this allegiance and loyalty and a level of denial. I would say around it, um, but where it's been so permeated into into the culture. I too, when I look at young people who are smoking, I also feel this kind of surprise. But knowing what I know about just how much marketing there has been over the years and how strong of an influence culture is. And so, you know, again, if it's in your family, if it's in your community, then it's going to seem like something that's natural and normal um, to pick up. And once you pick it up, you're addicted to it. So it's hard um, to put it down. But of course, what we've also all seen is how many young people have picked up vaping. And that's not by accident, because the tobacco industry you know, it's just um, really fueled this kind of arm of its marketing and production and said, okay, well, if, you know, we're going to have all of um, this, uh, like, outcry against cigarettes, then we'll find another way to addict people and separate them from their money. Now, I have to imagine all the major cigarette corporations have a vaping section now is there is there any evidence or data that proves that vaping is a gateway to actual cigarette smoking no but my understanding is that a lot of people are misled particularly by the tobacco industry to believe that vaping is a way to curtail cigarette smoking so that it's seen as like the lesser of two evils. And um, so if we want people to stop smoking cigarettes, then we need to offer them this vaping option to pull them away from cigarettes. But 
the reality is that most people who vape also smoke. Oh, really? Right. And so it's not, you know, for some people, it may be something that allows them to make that switch from combustible cigarettes to the electronic cigarettes. Um, But for the majority of folks, they're actually doing both. So that's where it becomes really like, um, you know, unsound to somehow think that this is a way in which we pull people off of the combustibles. Um, The other thing is that vaping, unfortunately, um, because it's relatively new, it doesn't have the many years of um, research behind it for us to know what the long-term impacts are. So the research that we have up to this point basically says, this is a toxin and it's bad for you. And you know this isn't something that you want to be inhaling into your lungs. But it doesn't have, again, those many generations of research that we have behind the combustibles for people to be able to make their decisions just based on that research. Absolutely. And I would say I definitely, on the contrary to smoking, I see people my age and younger vaping constantly, like right. plumes of it, plumes and plumes. <laughs> did did D.A.R.E. not work? Did D.A.R.E. fail? I mean, wh- what are the stats after D.A.R.E.? Um, well, D.A.R.E. <laughs> so D.A.R.E. was a prevention program um, that was really, really popular, like in the 80s and 90s, right? Yep. And so we have whole generations of kids that grew up on D.A.R.E., but it was not science-based. So oh, really? No. So, and in fact, um, sometimes it actually had the opposite effect, right? So it like heightened kids' curiosity. Oh, wow. As, right. As opposed to turning them away from drugs, which is what it was supposed to be doing, right? Like preventing kids from going down that road. Um, yeah. When I um, was really in my height of being a prevention scientist and looking at these prevention programs and DARE was the one that was the most implemented, the most funded. Um, And that was really unfortunate because, um, you know, when we're looking at essentially the causes behind substance abuse and, and addiction, they're pretty complicated. And so just to be telling kids, this is a drug, it's bad for you, don't do it that that's really simplistic and that's not really the way that we're designed. It reminds me of teaching abstinence in schools. Yeah, exactly. To children. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're just going to tell you, don't do this thing. Have they switched <laughs> to, to a different uh, mode of teaching children? Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's my understanding. There may be places that still do dare. I don't know. Um, it's also possible that newer versions of dare have caught up with prevention science. Um, but no, there's actually much more of um, an emphasis now on looking at the environment. And so that's actually how my career trajectory kind of changed as well, was that um, instead of focusing on the decisions that children, that young people are making, um, it's more about what is the context in which those decisions are being made. So are those decisions being made in the context of a lot of trauma in the community, right? Are those 
those decisions being made in the context of not having good choices around other things like your education and academics and sports and recreation and arts and culture and um, food security and housing security, right? Um, And not having to battle racism on a daily basis. So like, let's tackle those things. So that's more the direction that the prevention field is headed in. It's more of a public health approach um, and it's more of an equity approach. So it's a very nuanced path that leads someone to smoking, not just, I want to be cool. I want to be like the celebrities. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, real quick, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to say thank you to everybody for all the support since starting this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, you don't need to buy anything. I'm not asking you to do anything out of the ordinary. Just tell a friend. Just tell a friend that, hey, I found this new podcast where Joe spends hours researching every guest because he really does respect your time and want it to be worthwhile. So if you're looking to help me out, you could make my week by just telling someone about the show. That's it. All right, let's get back to it. Now, I have to ask because I naively I go, well, why don't you just make cigarettes so expensive that nobody can buy them or it's almost impossible? Why isn't why hasn't yeah. that been done? Well, um, it has. So there is actually rationale for raising the price of cigarettes because people, especially young people, um, are less likely to purchase cigarettes if they can't afford them, right? And so there's actually really good science behind that, which is why it can cost, what, 10 or 15 bucks to oh, buy really? cigarettes these Oh, yeah. Cigarettes in um, New York, I think, I was looking up recently that they were incredibly expensive. In California, they're fairly expensive. So that has actually been a prevention strategy is to increase the prices um, the issue is that you can get cigarettes black market. And so if, if all of the states aren't increasing their prices, um, then you can get them from other states. So people work their way around um, the high price of cigarettes, unfortunately. Some people do. Not everyone does, but some people do. Okay. And then uh, on, kind of along the same vein, plain packaging. It's been adopted in, you know, Australia and other countries where they do away with the nice, sexy covers and it's really horrific pictures of mouth cancer and throat cancer and all that. Do you ever see a day in the US where plain packaging is adopted or would it be fought so hard that it will never happen? I don't know because I don't know I don't know how strongly the cigarette companies are going to stay the course around cigarettes. You know, or if they are going to gradually move towards just putting all of their backing into other modes of um, uh, of getting your nicotine. Uh, and so I don't know that I can answer whether they're going to really like have that be the sword that they die on, the plain packaging. I guess taking it a step further, and maybe I'll pose it to the larger planet earth and not just the u.s do you think there will be a country that um completely bans cigarettes and which one do you think it would be yes and i think that it's going to come about uh, yes 
but again, I think that it's going to come about more likely than not with a series of policies. And so one of those policies being phasing out cigarettes so that young people are not able to purchase cigarettes even as they get older um, so that they essentially, you know, you grad, you grandfather in those who are of smoking age um, combined with um, uh, reducing the amount of nicotine that are in cigarettes combined with reducing the outlets um, where you can purchase cigarettes, um, you know, so that there are all of these ways to get to what we call the end game. And it works because as you mentioned in your talk, it's been done with opium before this grandfather clause and eventually you kind of squash it out. Now I'm I'm thinking realistically on your license, would you have some sort of thing? Because I would hate for someone behind the, the store to have to do the math because I, I definitely don't trust that to happen correctly. So would you have like a little placard, like a little oh, snip on your card? So or? here's the, no. So here's the really beautiful thing about grandfathering is that it's based on a date. So it would be anyone born, you know, um, after the year 2000 or whatnot, that they would never be able to purchase cigarettes anyone born before 2000 would always be able to purchase cigarettes. So there's no math to do. It's just a date. Easy. E- easy to do that. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> now, what would be the mechanism to, to pass that first step? Well, healing back up. Is that the first step in the plan then? Or is there a law that has to go into effect before the grandfather one to kind of ease us into it a little bit? No, that really can just be what happens. So as I also mentioned in my talk that there are some forerunners. Um, So Brookline, Massachusetts has already done this. Um, New Zealand has already done this. And so you don't have to do um, any kind of law in advance of this. Um, It's great to do education so that people understand why you're doing this, what it's about, all of that, so that folks can kind of prepare themselves Um, for it and can talk about it with their family and friends and that kind of thing. But one of the beauties of phasing out cigarettes and, you know, again, establishing a date um, wherein people who are younger, you know, who are born before that date will never be able to purchase is that it's essentially raising the legal age to sell cigarettes by one day every day. That's essentially what it does. Interesting. Okay. And so what that, right. And so what that also, what that also translates into is that the profits that people are making off of selling cigarettes are going to essentially fade out by one day every day. It's not a snap thing that overnight, you know, I was making my livelihood off of selling cigarettes and now I wake up the next day and suddenly I have no way to feed my family. No, it means that you actually have years to transition into something else. Now, in the United States, what would that actually look like? What would be the the true process to do that? Because I, I imagine, I mean, could this be an executive order or would it have to go through like... Uh, I'm going to be very naive here. The other way of making laws, like how could you actually do this today? Yeah. So we were thinking that there were a few different ways to approach this. Like 
Um, I mean, I guess it could be done at a federal level, um, but we were thinking um, state by state that you could either have it come out like through the governor's office where they say, this is something that we want to have happen the same way that our governor's office came out, oh, maybe around 2016, 2018, somewhere in there, and um, decided that we really needed to have our um, legal age for smoking, for being able to purchase cigarettes, um, be 21 instead of 18, um, and that that was for cigarettes and for vaping products. So it can come out through the governor's office. Um, it could come up through a legislator. So a senator or an assembly member could actually say, you know, this is legislation that I want folks to get behind. And in fact, we had one here in California. And I have the legislation. Um, that's so funny. Okay, well, I have it somewhere in my office. <laughs> AB 395, um, where um, Assemblymember Connolly um, in February of this year of 2023 did exactly that, said, this is what we need to do uh, in order to phase out cigarettes. Um, and then the third way that it could happen is um, for the public to vote on it. So to actually put it on as an initiative on a ballot uh, and have the public vote on it. So there are a few different ways that a state could go about making this policy change. It sounds a lot like marijuana and what's happening there. States are legalizing it on their own, but federally it's still illegal, but except this would be the opposite. So right. I guess what would happen in that case then? Like, what would that battle look like with, with at the federal level versus the state level with buying a cigarette then? Would, would you, I mean, technically, would you still be able to, to purchase a cigarette? Because doesn't the federal level trump the state level when it comes to like the order? Well, I guess um, we would have to have that battle. I assume that the cigarette companies would try to wage that battle. Um, sure. And so we would see what would happen with it. But, you know, it comes down to states' rights, essentially, uh, in this way. So I know that the, the tobacco industry has, had to, has tried to really push back against, like, flavored tobacco bans um, that states have passed, and um, they've been unsuccessful with that fight. Interesting. Okay. Because I, I feel like that's aimed more towards younger people, flavors and oddities that way. So, I mean, this would clearly, maybe not clearly, but I feel like it would definitely end up in the Supreme Court if if someone didn't, somewhere in any state along the lines didn't like what was happening. I mean... But, you know, Brookline, Massachusetts, um, it has held up in court um, that what they have done is legal to pass this policy. Oh, it has? Oh, yeah. Okay. And it's, I mean... Has there been any new data or surveys on, you know, clearly it's made an impact, but has that been spread yet? The results of that? That I don't know. I mean, Brookline, Massachusetts is a pretty tiny place. Um, and so they would be much more successful if the other jurisdictions around them adopted the same policy, right? Because they 
are able to say within the confines of Brookline, um, you know, you cannot purchase cigarettes, you cannot be sold cigarettes um, if you were born um, um, after a certain date, but then folks can go outside of Brookline and purchase cigarettes. And so I think that with this policy, it's strongest when more jurisdictions come on board with it. That absolutely makes sense. There always will be people who try to skirt the law and the issues. Right. Now, along those lines, though, I think some people, the folks who are pro being able to buy cigarettes, they they make the case, well, other things are harmful for me, right? And why are those not regulated as heavily? Mm-hmm. Is it the guarantee that you will probably succumb to smoking that makes it different than something like a fast food or a firearm or something like that, whereas it needs to be regulated? Well, I guess I would ask you this. If there were an airline that had a 50 to 66% crash rate. Wow. Yeah. Terrifying. Terrifying. (laughs) Would we want the government to step in and say, you've got to ground those planes? Or would we say it's our right to be able to get on those planes? Would you get on a plane that had a crash rate like that? Right. So I think that that's what we're dealing with when it comes to cigarettes. Now, the the thought, though, then is, you know, say we did, say we did eventually outlaw cigarettes and it's it's vaping. Let's look way down the line. What do you see as the next major issue? Like what? I mean, vaping is clearly not good for you, but the science just isn't there. Do you think we just repeat this whole process with vaping again in 80 years? You mentioned 1964, and I think in 1880, they started making these things. So in 80 years, will we be having the same discussion with vaping? So it's a great question. I wish that I could look into the future and see. I would like to think that as a species, we're getting smarter you know, that we're able to learn from our mistakes, you know, that we're able to see the writing on the wall when corporate profits are taking advantage of us and killing us. And yet, there aren't always signs out there um, that are heartening. <laughs> you know, that right. there are still a lot of people that are dutifully clinging to an uber capitalist model of, you know, profits at all costs and um, kind of this uh, idea that public health um, is something bad or evil or to be fought with. Uh, And so in a lot of ways, I feel like it's about our collective cultural consciousness when it comes to this vaping question. You know, so as the science mounts to let us know that this is something that is hazardous. This is something, you know, that is antithetical to our health. Are we going to learn our lessons from our fight with cigarettes and essentially jump in the way 
of a continued trajectory with the vaping, or are we going to kind of wait it out on the sidelines um, and let people, quote unquote, quote, make their own choices? Um, I wish that I could say, you know, where, where we were headed with that. Um, I would like to think that people are going to be more proactive, um, that they're going to feel like um, they know enough about addiction to take a stand. But I guess that remains to be seen. Absolutely. And do we have any idea the burden it places on our medical infrastructure every year by treating ailments that are specifically caused by smoking? Has there been any research there? There is a lot of research there. And I don't know if I have those numbers off the top of my head. I can probably get back to you on them. Um, but there is a tremendous burden that is placed on um, our healthcare system, which is why my feeling around any kind of profit that is going into our system because of cigarettes would easily be offset many times by the burden. So we have um, taxes, for example, on our cigarettes in California that are going to um, certain social programs and ironically to, you know, early education programs and to um, smoking prevention <laughs> programs, <laughs> um, right? Very ironic. And so, yeah, so it's like you need people to continue to purchase the product in order to continue with the programs, which is an argument that the tobacco industry is making. Wow. <laughs> yes. So um, it's really uh, twisted and backwards. But the reality is that if we were to look out into the future and do some projections around the amount of money that we would be saving from the um, in, a, in our healthcare system, we would have more than enough to replenish any of that tax money that's going in uh, for those programs. Now, do you think employers who, you know, pay for portions of their employees' uh, medical coverage, is there, is there any rule on how much they're able to pull back if someone is a smoker just due to the fact that they know this person is going to become very ill one day? Yeah. I don't know that, but I know that um, health plans for sure set their rates based on whether or not you're a smoker. And in fact, someone was telling me that they actually had to get tested for nicotine because oh, wow. they had been a smoker. And so, um, you know, if you then are changing your status to say, I'm no longer a smoker and I should have a lower rate, you know, then you actually have to prove that you're not smoking. And there are other, I'm going to call them drawbacks for use of a better word to smoking than just the actual smoke, right? It changes the functions within your body besides just smoke going into your lungs. I mean, yeah. there's wide ranging effects and I don't think most people recognize truly the damage they're doing. Could you, yeah. I mean, would you mind rattling off some of those? Cause they're kind of phenomenal. I mean, there's like impotence like what man wants right. to mess with that you know right. in exchange for smoking um that it's related to dementia and alzheimer's you know why do you want to mess with your 
cognitive abilities. That's something that all of us are fearful of, right? Mm -hmm. As we grow older, you know, why would we want to do something to hasten that or to increase the likelihood of that? You know, there are so many ways in which smoking is, as you said, going to impact more than just our lungs. If you were to think about, um, I, I don't know, like I get this image in, in my mind of wrapping my mouth around the tailpipe of a car, you know, <laughs> and just inhaling the exhaust from the tailpipe of a car right into my system. Like we wouldn't think to do that, right? Out yeah. of a like pure survival standpoint, we wouldn't think to do that. And yet we do it with cigarettes and it's essentially the same thing that we are loading up these toxins into our bodies and doing it, you know, day after day after day, of course there are going to be impacts. We, you couldn't help but have impacts. Of course our cells are going to mutate and become cancerous. You know, that there are all of these outcomes um, that, you know, unfortunately if you're 14 years old and you're picking up cigarettes and not really thinking, you know, about, about these kinds of outcomes or having that infallibility. And, you know, and that's one of the saddest things is that so many people become addicted when they're really young before they really have the executive functioning to think through this. And when they still have a lot of feelings of being invincible. And of course, that most people who start smoking believe that they can walk away from it whenever they want. And then, oh my gosh, yes. Sadly, you know, realize yes. that that's not the case. Too many people I know, they, they've quit. And then all of a sudden I'm like, what, what are you doing, man? I'm like, yeah. I thought we were over this. Yeah. And uh, sadly not. But the good news is they're embarrassed. So clearly there's, a sh <laughs> there's some sort of shift going on there though is. where they, they don't think, oh, you're dumb for not doing it. They go, oh, I'm embarrassed. I'm doing it again. So at, on yeah. some level it's working, I guess. Yeah. I think that there's a, I think that there is a cultural shift um, that has been made around smoking cigarettes in younger generations. Um, but I don't think that we're there at all with the vaping. No, we're not because vaping is right now seen as cool, sadly. Right. Um, and it, you know, obviously is not, but I wanted to go back to, you know, we know why, well, we kind of know why people start now, but somewhere thousands of years ago, someone rolled up some tobacco and smoked it. Why? Why would the human brain go, I want to do that? And is it actually somewhat kind of ingrained in you that you want to do this? Otherwise, why would someone have done it in the first place, do you think? Yeah, we are sensation seekers, right? And so whoever that first person was who lit up their nicotine receptors probably went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the same the same way that first person who stumbled across uh coffee beans went, Yeah, <laughs> there's something to this. Do you think then if well, I guess do you know when the first quote unquote cigarette was ever smoked in mankind's history? No, I have no idea. And who knows if it was you know, chewed tobacco, if it was sure, something, sure. you know, that was really accessible in that way that people were able to chew, and it may have done something like quelled um, hunger, or, you know, had some other kind of effect that people started using it for. So then do you think that 
evolutionary response in our brains has changed in in those thousands of years to make it hypersensitive or no? Yeah, I think evolution takes a lot longer than that. Okay, so it, yeah. we're, we're just as dumb as the first people who did it. We're just trying we to match are. Larry in the cave yeah, and over the first there. People, yeah. I, well, we're a lot dumber than the first people who did it. The first people who did it didn't know. <laughs> they didn't know, the yeah. Science. Good they point, we're know. dumber, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh man, that that's actually a bummer. <laughs> it's like evolution going the opposite direction that it needs to be. <laughs> so then gum and patches right? That's how people try to, or cold turkey, I guess. So yeah. if you are smoking, I mean, scientifically, what's the best way to try to stop? Well, it works differently for different people. There are people who have just made the decision to go cold turkey and, and they've been able to do that. So hats off to those folks who have been able to do that. Um, for other folks, it's usually a combination of some kind of nicotine management and social support. So, you know, you want to be working with some kind of support group or counselor, you know, there are hotlines um, that the states run for you to be able to get that kind of support and people need to take advantage of it. And whenever I see uh, someone quit smoking, they usually turn to something else, whether it's, you know, Mm -hmm. some other form of, um, substance or activity to kind of like scratch the itch is it the same part of the brain then that enjoys like candy and sweets because i see that one a lot so it can be that people have um essentially like addictive personalities and so that's part of what you're seeing is that for some folks when they um you know like they may stop drinking alcohol but then they turn to cigarettes you know, or something like right. that, right? And so where it is that need to kind of fulfill something. And um, and so then it is, is there a way to direct whatever that itch is that you were talking about, scratching that itch into something that is going to have the least amount of harm for them? You know, so for some people, it's doing something that may be a little bit more adventurous, you know, if it's more about like kind of getting that thrill if that's what lights them up. Um, And so is that, you know, snowboarding or downhill skiing or, you know, something like that, where you're able to kind of channel that rush that you're trying to get into something that is not going to have so much harm harm potential or risk potential. And are the dangers of smoking linear with the amount of cigarettes you smoke a day? Or does it or at a certain point, do you plateau? Like if you smoke 150 a day, is it the same as a hundred? Or, I mean, is there a, is there a bend in the curve, so to speak, or is it just straight one-to-one keep going up? You're that much more at risk. Um, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have the answer to that question. Um, in part because, in part because we're, we're built differently, you know, like I've known people who um, have quit smoking, have been heavy smokers, quit smoking, 10 years later, it caught up with them and they died of lung cancer, you know, where they had just done so much damage to their bodies that they unfortunately weren't able to recoup. Although the body tries to start repairing itself the moment that you stop smoking. And so that is kind of the good news for people who are addicted, who want to stop is that the body also wants to start healing from the moment that you stop. 
Um, but yes, my understanding is that the more that you smoke, the more potential for harm that you have. If you just imagine it again with that analogy of putting your mouth around the tailpipe of a car, you know, how much smoke essentially, um, how many toxins are you uh, inhaling? Are you doing that once a day? Are you doing that 50 times a day? You know, that you can imagine that the more that you're bombarding your system with the toxins, the more likely that the wheels are going to come off. Is there any scenario where... Yeah, I feel like I've seen this in shows. I don't know if it's real, but where a parent catches their kid smoking and then you have to smoke like 50 at once and there's all these cigarettes. Is is that at all a good way to handle that scenario? I or, can't believe like, people used to do that. I know, right? I mean, maybe the real question yeah. is if you have a child who does start to smoke or a friend. Don't I mean, do that. <laughs> what's the, <laughs> don't do that. What it, What should you actually do besides yeah. tell them they're an idiot? <laughs> I would reach out to the smokers um, helpline and start there because it's a matter of getting the resources and the support, you know, the professional support uh, in order to take that next step. And there's likely assessments that are involved, um, you know, that would look into what's behind your smoking, what's the context for your smoking, how much do you smoke, what exactly do you smoke. Um, that is going to help you with a treatment plan. And the last question I'll ask you has to do with the buzz. Cause you mentioned, you know, you get, you get this nicotine buzz, but yeah. after how long, how many cigarettes or how many days are you just doing that to get back to the normal state? Is it like a day, a week? How quickly does that just disappear now? It's, it's a need instead of a want for someone. You know, I don't know. Um, but I think that it, from what I've heard from folks who have become addicted is that it happens a lot faster than they think. Right. Oh, wow. So if you're starting to pick up cigarettes that within a week, you could have already essentially hooked yourself. You know, oh. this is something right that you have started with. Um, so the, the brain is responding pretty quickly. You know, those nicotine receptors um, are responding the very first time that you smoke. But the question is, again, like, how long does it take before the brain is saying, oh, wait a second, now I need to have that cigarette. Now I have to have that cigarette. I'm going to make life really uncomfortable for you until you until you give me that cigarette. Um, and then the more that you smoke, the more that you train your brain that this is how you make things better, right? Because remember, when you when you smoke that cigarette, like you make things better in your brain. So everything feels kind of right again. Um, and then it's how long can you go before you have to rinse and repeat, do that cycle again, right? Um, and so you'll see some people who can go a little bit longer in between having to smoke. And you'll see some people who really actually have to be chain smokers because it's so uncomfortable to them to be without that, that nicotine for any significant period of time at all. We're literally the first thing in the morning that they do is to reach for that pack of cigarettes. And it's the last thing that they do, you know, before they go to bed at night. Um, so it's an unfortunate position to be in. And like you mentioned, 
if you're around someone smoking, it's incredible how fast it happens. Like they start and then it's gone and and they must be adding things in there to do that, right? So they're quick and you have to keep buying more, presumably? Oh, yeah. So to make the paper, they to make the cigarettes... Disapp- um, yeah, it's gone. Disappear, right? Yeah. I'm like, holy <laughs> cow, that was like two minutes and it's gone. It's crazy. <laughs> but also the, you know, like the more forcefully you inhale, the oh, faster, sure, sure. right? And so if you really are trying to get that nicotine into your system really quickly, the more for- forcefully you're going to inhale. And is the campaign right now, say we can't pass these laws is it working at all? Are we decreasing the number of smokers even a little yeah. bit currently? Oh, oh yeah, are. absolutely. The number of smokers has de- decreased considerably, um, but it looks like we've hit kind of this plateau state. And so that's why we really need to continue to be vigilant um, and to, you know, <laughs> and to not pretend like a billion people over the next century isn't a significant number. Because that's what we're projected to lose to cigarettes over the next century um, globally is a billion people under our current tobacco policies. Wow. It's like one in eight people right now. That's right. Terrifying. It is terrifying. And when you think about essentially the tobacco industry preying on the places where folks are the most vulnerable. So that's what, you know, we will continue to see is that those communities, those states, those countries that have the least ability to fight back against the industry will be the ones that are just plied with this product for profit. But I mean, hopefully, hopefully we can make a change. What, what was the city in Massachusetts that passed the law? Brookline, little Brookline. Brookline little Brookline stepping out in front, taking the charge. Um, Tamu, thank you so much for coming on. If folks want to see more of the work you're doing, how can they get a hold of it? Oh, they can reach out um, through my website, which is eqwi.us, or my inbox, which is hello at eqwi.us. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching me and everyone truly the dangers of cigarettes. We all know they're bad, but when you really start to to go into the weeds, it's terrifying. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I really appreciate you for the interview. Thanks so much, Joe. 